Friends, welcome back to the Ransomed Heart podcast. John Eldridge here, actually recording this introduction from the UK, where we are currently over on a kind of mission. We are so excited to introduce to you a series that we're beginning this week on the topic of the world. In the unholy trinity of enemies that the scriptures warn us about, you have the world, the flesh, and the devil, as the old saints would call it. I think we're fairly clear at this point what our own flesh is capable of, and we are only too familiar with the devil and what he's about. But this thing called the world, what is this world that Scripture actually has some fairly strong things uh, to say about, including friendship with the world is enmity of God or becoming an enemy of God. That is strong stuff. And it began a series of conversations, readings, um, just sort of interaction among our team to unpack this thing. Surely it's not stuff like some of our forefathers thought. It's playing cards, it's going to the movies, right? It's dancing. It has to be something far more substantive, something far more at the level of the heart. And so what began is one recording led to two and two led to three. And we are launching this week a six-part series on the world that we think you are going to find immensely helpful uh, I hope, insightful, and and truly hope that it is liberating. So here we go on part one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. 1 John 2, 15. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James 1.27 And then the doozy, then the one that I find personally really disruptive. From James 4, don't you know? That friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Oh, man, that is just strong stuff. John Eldridge in the studio with Alan and with Morgan. It's passages like this that have begun, I think, in a fresh way to get me thinking about the world. It just started some some offline conversations that we've had, the world. Is that a category that you tend to think in? Is that, you know, one of your sort of evaluative pieces that you hold up on a regular basis? For me, I would say the world has become less and less of something that I feel like fits anymore, where 15, 20 years ago, it felt a little bit more like something that most of the time was invisible and that I agreed with and that made sense. And I don't know about you guys, but in the last few years, it just seems more and more when I think about the world, it's like it doesn't really feel like home much anymore because it's it's so anti-everything that we would hold 
in value. So I, it's mm-hmm. okay. So a definition is going to be required really quickly because yes. I can hear people mishearing this already. So there is the world that God made, and sometimes we use that. Oh, I love the world, and and. What we mean is, I love nature, I love creation, I love animals, I love the forests, or I love the prairies. Okay, that, that's one use of the world, but we'll call that nature, okay, or creation. That's not what James has in mind when he says, if you start loving the world, you're going to become the enemy of God, because God loves creation. And there is the world that God loves. There, John 3.16, I mean, it's hanging out there at every baseball game, Right. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, the use of the word there is the human race. Mm. There is the human race, human cultures, human peoples, human hearts and lives Jesus Christ came for. Okay, so the passages here that I was reading from 1 John 2 and James 1 and, and James 4, that if anyone loves the world, the love of God is not in them. Okay, that world— mm-hmm is the collective momentum of human sin based on a deep, deep commitment post-Eden for us to figure out life without God, Mm. okay? So, how do we make life work without God? And then you get a bunch of very clever people working on that for centuries. It creates an entire system of values and assumptions and postures and just just ways of living that go completely unexamined. And it's that, that the Scripture has some pretty strong things to say about. Mm. And we are a fairly monastic group of people, or we have become so over the years, but I'm just embarrassed at how little I think about this category. Um, I'm very very concerned about personal holiness, sin in my life, and character and conduct. I'm very concerned about the flesh. I'm quite concerned about the evil one and shutting down his activities, but I just don't think about the world much. I don't, and I think we need to. I think the invitation of this series is, so let's think about that a little. Yes. If if there is this thing called the world, this collective momentum of human assumptions on life without God that creates an entire existence, we ought to think about that, and we ought to think about the way that it's shaping us. So, here's what I want to start with. This is going to be a multi-part series, and and I'm going to throw out a phenomena at the beginning of each series that I think our readers can at least see, recognize, relate to, to get the conversation going. So, here's, here's the phenomena for today. Starbucks. Alan's already cracking up. <laughs> Alan, <laughs> you have a confession for us? Well, I brought this in for you guys to see. This is my Starbucks gold card. Wow. Oh, yeah. I thought that was from Star Trek at first. <laughs> some pass to get in some secret door. I've never seen one before. Tell us more. Well, you only get that if you spend way too much money. <laughs> okay. Every day at Starbucks. <laughs> you are a Starbucks a gold card, gold yeah. card holder. Yeah. Is there a secret lounge? There is. is. There is, but I can't tell you anything more. Air-conditioned, recliners, yeah. Okay, so Starbucks. Everybody can can go, oh yeah, sure, Starbucks. I see them all the time. I mean, it's hard to go two blocks in some locations without seeing 
to Starbucks. It's just astounding <laughs> how many there are, right? I, I read in an Onion article one time that it said this, you know, news, uh, Starbucks just actually opened inside the bathroom of another Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you get the idea. So what I want to ask is, here you have this ubiquitous thing, Starbucks, in our in our world. Everybody runs into it. Most people literally run into it. They go inside or pull into the drive through What does Starbucks tell us about the world, mm. right? It's, it's popular. It's common, right? It's accessible. It's successful. It's, everybody knows the color mm. and the nature of a Starbucks cup. We just do. So given that, what... What does the existence of Starbucks tell us about the world? Alan, Mr. Well, Goldcard. They do make some good coffee. But I think what it tells us is we want what we want right now. Mm. And we're willing to pay way more than it's worth for the, the convenience, the, the pampering, the, the specialty way of doing it that they have, we think. And as you were talking about that, John, I realized I spend for a cup of coffee— the way I get it, I'll spend about five bucks a day on the coffee. And the in the immediacy, that doesn't seem like that much, right? But then I go, well, wow, five, six times a week, times a month, I'm spending for what I could brew at home pretty easily over $100 every month for the convenience of now and for that that hit of satisfaction of somebody handing you the perfectly made cup of coffee. So... It's and you would say, Alan, it, just to, just to name it, what is it that that Starbucks gives for to you daily? What it gives to me when I am on my way into the outpost is, no matter what else happens in the day, this is going to go right. I mean, I'm just it's a confession. Beautiful. No, it's, it's good. Like, Beautiful. Like I'm going to get a little slice, a little piece of something on the way in. This just joy that can't be taken away, and that to me, is worth $5 mm. in that moment. I've never articulated yes. to myself that way until now, but yeah. Well, and it's not just coffee, gang. I mean, it's frappuccinos, right? It's it's their oatmeal. It's their pastries. That You can get sandwiches there now. You can get the little breakfast sandwich things that they'll heat up for you. I mean, it's it certainly is convenience, right? Right. I remember I read some early books on the story of Starbucks because it was fascinating to see this movement come out of nowhere. You know, coffee shops used to be very custom and unique in cultures. And when they first started, there was a huge battle about will we serve cream with the coffee? Because they were artisans, right? And they made remarkable coffee. And the original idea was the cream would ruin it right? That ruins a good cup of coffee. And there was a huge battle over that. And of course, John, to your question of what does it say about the world? Well, now it's a caramel frappe mochiato, right? And then there was a big battle of, well, we don't serve food because people don't want to smell food around coffee. Again, ruining the purity of coffee. We'll now walk in. You can have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so it's very intriguing to watch it evolve over time. There's something in the value system that says, to your point, Alan, can have it exactly the way I want it. The customer mm -hmm. is the center of the reality. Yeah, this is really huge, gang. So as we're listeners, as we're going along here and you're kind of taking the journey with us, what is the world? 
just even the change in Starbucks' own culture. Yes. Mm-hmm. From we want to serve an excellent cup of coffee and no cream. And we're not having food in here too. You know, now you get the triple frappe, you know, sweetie, you know, <laughs> thing right. together with your donuts, right? That you can get or whatever you want. I mean, what does that say? What is that telling us about common assumptions, common values? It, it has to do with convenience. It has to do with ease. And it, it has something to do with, but at kind of a cool level. Like it's hip, it's it's high grade convenience, it's it's upper drawer experience as well, right? right? It's not right. the same thing as driving through and getting McDonald's cup of coffee, right? Because you can do that, but it's different. There's something hip about it, or they're trying to be at least. Now you have third wave coffee, which is you know all the new coffee joints coming up that are independent. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to get off into that now, but the point being, I want to contrast that with something that's actually become very important to us over the years as we have thought about how do you shape good men? Just taking a very, very narrow question for a moment. How how do you shape boys and men into good men? Great dads, faithful, loving husbands, men who are making a remarkable difference in the world. That's been core to our mission, and it's it's become very important question to us over time as more and more men have turned to us to say, can you help me with my sexuality? Can you help me with my marriage, my relationships? Can you help me as a father? Can you can you help me now as a stepdad? Can you help me now as a divorced father? You know, just all of the fragmentation of human experience. If you start with that question, we came very quickly to, well, it's a process. It's a process, mm-hmm. and it's a process that takes place over time. And it's a process that requires quite a bit of the man, Mm. right? Absolutely. A man is shaped by going through a series of experiences that are hard. We call it initiation. And that over time, something in him dies. Yes. And something in him is born and formed and strengthened, right? And it, yes. it doesn't happen at Starbucks. Right. Words like convenient, quick, easy are not necessarily words that you would associate with the process of initiation. Rather, words like costly mm-hmm. and rich and inconvenient. Highly inconvenient. Disruptive, right? Yeah. And not just shaping men, of course, but anyone who wants to take the narrow path of of Christian discipleship will soon discover that it's nothing like Starbucks. You don't get to order it. It's not quick. It doesn't taste great at first, (laughs) right? (laughs) Totally. Okay. So here you have this contrast. We're We're just getting this going that you have convenience, quick, ease, my way, specialty, uh, and, and kind of cool convenience, hip convenience, you know, top drawer convenience versus something that feels more ancient, which is process, maturity, development, over time, through hardship, through difficulty. And right away, you're going to start seeing, whoa, well, we're on to something here. There's something about the world 
currently that has become absolutely infatuated with convenience, with ease. And I, I just want to point out self-driving cars, right? Is the you know the cutting edge right now of automobile industry development and Uber, you know, is running their experiments on on self-driving automobiles and you know, reporting crashes with things. That is, just hit a bicyclist in Arizona the other day. And, you know, Volvo and others are investing lots of money now in this, in the future of self-driving cars. So, gang, if you're you know, kind of not up to that, this is, the, this is the cutting edge. And they're saying, oh my gosh, this is, this is going to save money. This is going to protect human lives. You know, the, what if a person can't get to the hospital? Well, their car can drive them. And what if they have a heart attack? Well, the car will take over. And, you know, what if it's a crowded, busy freeway? Cars, you know, programmed with technology can react far more efficiently and, and quickly and safely than human beings and human judgment can. So this is the cutting edge. So, so get this, though. I just read yesterday Uber's doing this test, and it's for pizza delivery. So it's an unmanned vehicle. As soon as you place your order, they put the pizza into this car that can heat the pizza and cook it while it's driving to your home. So it's it's 15 minutes, not 30 minutes now. There's no driver. Self-driving kitchen. But here, right. But here <laughs> was the problem. When they tested it, people didn't like the fact that they had to get up and walk out their door to the street, the driveway, the curb, to get their pizza. They wanted, so now the next test is, how can we get that automated no-driver car to somehow get it to their doorstep? Well, if they just link up with Amazon and have their <laughs> have their drones <laughs> bring it from the car to the door. Okay, so you see the, you see the madness, right. gang. Okay, so here we are. What do, what do Starbucks and self-driving cars tell us, dear listeners? What does it tell you about the world you live in, friendship of which— is hostility toward God. Like, whoa, wait, what? That's that's too strong. That's not fair. That's you guys aren't, you know, you're not picking the right targets. Hang on here. Hang on. Like, what does it say about us? Certainly the worship of ease, right? The 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 absolute idolization of comfort, ease, you know, speed, efficiency, right? And and I started backing this up. I go, okay, well that's that's a given, man. You and you you know you want to pay a few extra bucks. You can get you can reserve your movie seats now in in, in the theater, and you get the reclining chairs, right? You got the big, you know, comforters, and on and on it goes, right? You pay a couple extra bucks, you can get into the airport lounge, and yada yada. I mean, ease, comfort, pleasure at a low bar, you know, accessibility to us. That is a high value, right? What kind of assumption produces a culture that does that? Why, why would people make ease and Starbucks and self-driving cars? Why, why would convenience become sort of the driving marketing force and, and developmental force, you know, technology force in the world, in the Western world? Why would, that, why would that happen? What kind of culture would produce that? What's behind that? Let's dig into this like archaeologists a little bit. You know, John, the first kind of big idea that comes to mind is it it has to be a culture that's deeply rooted in, in the reality of making life work here and now. A culture that believes on some level 
this is all there is. And so I need to make it work. I, I need life, right? We are life-seeking creatures. But if this is it, now and to your point, I just love your confession of if this is as good as it gets and it's not a great day, at least a Starbucks is going to give me a little hit of, of life. So it really shows some short-sightedness where, mm. I guess, in contrast, you know, St. Francis said to wear the world like a loose-fitting robe where it touches you in a few places, but there very lightly. It's just the opposite of saying, nope, I need to make life work. Yeah, we're getting on to something here because I was thinking about blueberries the other day. I, I adore blueberries. They're, they're like a regular part of my diet and they're like super good for you and brain food and all that. I went into the market that I shopped at the other day and there was no blueberries. And honestly, my reaction was, what the, you know, like <laughs> no blueberries, come on. I mean, I'm the, hungry for blueberries. Yes, the entitlement yes. of it and also the ignorance of, well, you know what, Sean? 50 years ago, you could only get blueberries during blueberry season. But nowadays, we don't think anything mm. of the fact that, oh, well, if there's a drought in California, we'll just get them from Mexico. And, and if the season's done in Mexico, well, we'll just flip to the southern hemisphere and we'll import them from Chile. Seriously, look at your blueberry box from season to season you know, and notice where they rotate through. There's there's a global rotation of blueberry harvest, and the consumer doesn't even think about it. Whereas our grandparents, as farmers, right, they they did not have this quick, easy, convenient view mm. of the world. You sowed the land, you tended the bushes, you watered, and then you harvested, and that's it. Mm. And you're not going to harvest again until next year. You know, there was a cycle and a rhythm to things. So what kind of world, back to the archaeological dig here, what kind of world, what kind of people, what, what assumptions are we operating from that I would be upset? I can't get blueberries 365 days a year. <laughs> what? It's just embarrassing. Like, what is that in us so committed to the now? You're naming, I think, part of it is a culture of offense. And it's offense because they expect ease and efficiency Kelly and I were driving back from Denver, about an hour drive from there to Colorado Springs last weekend, and there was a wreck. And and so we're looking on our Google Maps, and it's saying, what should take an hour is going to take two and a half hours. And it slowed down more and more the closer we got. And I just looked at Kelly and, and was not being sarcastic, but really was being more honest than probably I should have been and said, you know what, when people get in a wreck and it's from carelessness, what they ought to do is fine them for every car that slowed down $20. And she looks at me like I'm crazy. And I said, no, no, no. It, she, but they couldn't pay that. And I'm like, right, put them in jail. That's it. Like, they don't drive anymore. And, and here's the reality, Alex. Like, you could be riding a horse from Denver, right? You could have <laughs> right. to walk from Denver, right? But right. we're coming with these assumptions of I'm entitled to an open lane. I hope our listeners, I hope that you're identifying with this because this is deep in humanity. This commitment to ease, this commitment to don't get in my way. And, and as I was trying to dig back into that, unearth what assumptions produce that. And Morgan, you said the, it's the assumption that it's now. Mm -hmm. We are utterly fixated on the present moment. There is no other moment. There is no future. 
right? This life is all there is. I really think that's one of the core driving assumptions of the world that the scripture is warning us heavily about. Mm-hmm. Not humanity, not the, you know, the, the peoples that Jesus Christ died for, but the world, the system that we create, yes. right? The assumptions and the momentum that it has to us. How did we get here? Utterly fixated on the present moment, utterly fixated on the now, right? And this is it. This is all there is. Because if you believe this is all there is, then you will put every last bit of your longings, your hopes, the abyss of the human heart, all of its needs and desires, you will fix on this, this moment, this now, mm. this. And therefore, of course, you want to maximize pleasure. You have to maximize pleasure, minimize pain. You've got to make the most out of it. You know, and then you can just start just start looking at all of the marketing ads to it, any marketing these days for anything is maximize your life. Mm-hmm. Maximize your life. You know, they don't come out and say, hey, we have a 25-year process by which your character is going to be transformed into a better human being. That's not what it's about, right? It, it is now. So I think if we could name something, here's this culture of instant, convenient, ease, but also kind of hip, High bar, you know, top drawer, ease, convenience, and, you know, Starbucks and self-driving cars, okay? How do we get there? Utterly fixated on the present moment. This is it. This is all there is. And just to give it a contrast for a moment, listen to this passage. I think most of our followers would recognize Hebrews 11 as the great hall of fame of faith. It's the chapter that's devoted to you know, Abraham and Sarah and all these greats of the faith, Joseph and and on down through the ages and Moses, right? So here's the here's these people that it's holding up for emulation. It's holding them up as the rock stars, the superstars, the ones to really model our lives after. And here's what it says in Hebrews eleven. It says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they'd left, they'd have opportunity to return. But instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And then a few passages later, it's, it's going into the life of Moses, and it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Mm. So you contrast, this is all there is. This is it. This, this is life here and now. Make it happen versus, no, that's not really how I look at it. This isn't. I, I'm a foreigner. I'm a nomad in this life, and, and I'm looking for my real country. 
I'm looking for my real people, and, and I'm looking for the real reward, which is coming, but isn't here now. And just how stark that is to hold up those two contrasts. Because if you, if you are looking to your reward as something that's out there ahead of you, then you don't need it to happen now. You don't demand that it happen now. Mm. You don't arrange that it happen now. Yeah, and John, that affects not only how we live, but how we parent too. And I had a great situation that was didn't feel great in the moment, but that was a real eye-opener for me the other day. One of our kids uh, has trouble oversleeping for school. And so we've had some conversations Hey, you know, we're not going to keep knocking on your door to three, four times, set your alarm. It's up to you. If you oversleep, you oversleep. Well, that sounds good, but that's really hard on the morning when you're about to take everyone to school to leave a kid asleep in bed. And just last week, that particular child overslept. And I started to knock on the door and I was like, you know what? If I'm measuring success for the day, it's that child being in their classroom when the bell rings. But success for that child longer term, and this is this is a high schooler, success longer term is making sure they know how to take care of their own needs in terms of getting up and making it happen. And so we let them sleep, and they missed school that day. And it didn't feel like success in that moment. It felt like failure. But actually, while the stakes in that particular case were lower, it was a huge success. And it only took one time. And it's and so when we start getting our focus off of the now and what's efficient and what's practical for the moment that day, which is just get everybody up and get them out the door and make it happen, to how are we raising our children and how are we living our lives, success then takes on a little bit different term because the goal no longer is easy. A lot of times the goal is good is actually hard. And let's go through the hard to get to the better rather than let's expect our days to be easy and efficient. And see, the the crazy-making thing about this is, Alan, any troubled youth program knows that. If you go to any troubled youth program, inpatient, residential, you know, work programs, after-school programs, they are all based on learning consequences for your actions, and developing in you mature decision-making abilities, right? It is forming self-discipline within you versus the knee-jerk reaction to the moment, right? That's what you're trying to do as a dad. Any of those programs will tell you that. And yet you look at our society and you go, no, no, we are literally doing the opposite to human beings. We're going to have people, we're going to have a machine drive your car for you, right? People don't, People don't research anything anymore. You just ask Siri, right? If, if you want to know the Chinese word for green, you just ask Siri. If you want to know how to get to the best pizza place in town, you just ask Siri, right? If, if you, you want to know anything, right? What, what's the boiling point of water? You just Google it, right? You don't have to learn anymore. There's nothing like human development. So our culture, our world is literally doing the very opposite of what a good parent would do. And, 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 what, and what, frankly, human nature knows at core 
you can't get away with that. Like it, it is hardship. It is discipline. It is the long road. It, it is putting in the hours, right? But, but we have a, a world now deeply committed to the opposite of that, convenience, ease. And I think it's because we are completely convinced this is all there is. And therefore, man, alive, don't make my life harder than it, than it already is. Make it easier. Come on. Right? Give me a little joy. I want a remote. I don't want to get up and change the channel. <laughs> right? Give me a remote. I don't want to go out to the curb to get my pizza that was delivered to me by a self-driving vehicle that cooked it on the way. You know, come to the door with that right. thing. Right? It's just, it's just fascinating. Wow, what has happened to us as a value system? What is operating there that to come back to scripture? friendship with it is actually hatred of God. Why would that be hatred of God, Morgan? You know, John, it's it's fascinating. The first time we talked about this a couple weeks ago, um, it really got me thinking about it. What it exposed is a profoundly deep, divided allegiance. Divided allegiance within me. Because, like you said, we're fairly monastic and we've kind of forsaken the world in some significant ways. And yet, in reflecting on this, it is exposing in me how deeply I am aligned with the world. And I'm even thinking, okay, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Today, just in praying for this podcast, I just went back through my day and said, so far today, what examples do I have where I have a profound allegiance to the world? You know, I had a conversation, and I say, quote unquote, with my wife via text this morning, um, which it's funny that you can even call that a conversation, but now that's what it's called. (laughs) It was an exchange of some deeply unhelpful texts at which I initiated. Um, It was a conversation that needed to happen face-to-face because it was over deep matters, but I hated what it would cost me of my time and energy. And deeper still, what I hated is it what it revealed in me of the places in me that have not matured to a point where I can say I'm loving my wife deeply and well. And so the the, the result is simply me firing off some text and then in a reactive way to mitigate a problem and move on justifying it with some really, um, you know, sanctified justifications. When the fact is, I hate that marriage exposes my immaturity. Texting is so convenient. It's so much easier than talking to a real human being. It, it really is. And so, gang, you can feel the disruption of this conversation and where, where we're headed in some of this. I think that what you could characterize the world as, at least in this first episode, we're just trying to begin to kind of, as archaeologists, sort of dig out this thing. What is this thing? We are fixated on the easy and convenient, not character development, but pleasure. I think the world can be characterized by the sin of Esau selling our future for a moment of relief. I think that's the world. It's the sin of Esau. And and again, back to Hebrews, which is a, a book that was written to a group of believers that were beginning to slip away. They were beginning 
to walk away from the faith because there was hardship involved and persecution. And so earlier, back in chapter 10, it says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no bitter root grows up. See that no one is sexually immoral. And then it goes on to say this, or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he'd done. So Esau was the moment. It's all about the moment. I am hungry now. I am hungry. Meet this ache now. Meet this need now. What's pornography? It's meet this need now. Don't make me you know, have to relate to a woman and be committed in marriage and cultivate love and friendship and intimacy. Now, I just want it now, right? On and on it goes. What's all the debt crisis, right? I want it now. Mm-hmm. Like, do not make me wait. Do not get in my way. What is the road rage, right? It's now. It's get this driver out of there. In fact, throw him in prison, right? It, you see that? It's the sin of Esau. It, it, there is no future. There is only now. And I'm willing to sell my future, whatever that may be, because I don't believe in one. I'm willing to sell it in order for a moment of personal relief, mm. a moment of relief, whatever that, whatever that relief looks like. I think if we were to characterize um, some of the things that we've been discovering about the world, what it is is the flight from reality. Just don't make me face reality. And, and therefore, there is no future. I don't want to deal with that. La, 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 la. There's no, there's no God. There's no afterlife. There's nothing I have to plan for. I don't have to, you know, store up treasures in heaven. It's now. Expletive. It's now, right? It's the flight from reality. And on so many levels, right, ease is the flight from reality. Because ease, in most cases, is actually not good for you right? Sitting is the new smoking, right? All the research coming out that sitting for hours a day is horrible for your health, right? That, you you know, now people are getting stand-up desks and stand-up workstations and that kind of thing because we're realizing ease and convenience and comfort is actually not good for human beings. But our deep commitment to it is just a flight from reality, just, you know, texting, so convenient, such a terrible way to hold a marriage conversation, right? It's the flight from reality, right? It's the preferred means. I want the easier route out. I mean, just think of Amazon. Last Christmas, like, I didn't go into a single store. I just ordered everything online. We order online now because it's click, it's boom, it gets delivered, and that's that. And, and now the trend for grocery shopping online and you can put your online order in and then pull up to the grocery store and they'll bring your bags out to the car and you just sign the, the credit card receipt, right? You don't, you don't need a map anymore. Your phone map program will take you anywhere you need to go and guide you step-by-step, step, left, right, 100 feet, you know, merge. Someone else changes your oil. Someone else washes your vegetables. I get, I get all of my... My vegetables come down and it says pre-washed, triple washed, my salad, my bagged salad, right? You don't even have to chop your own salad, right? Someone will make your dinner and deliver it, right? You can do your banking now on your phone. Just thinking about convenience 
You can take a photo of your daughter and send it to your parents. Boom, right now, in an instant. You can trade stocks, right? During a break in a meeting at work, you can order lunch and have it delivered by your phone. You can make travel arrangements from your phone. You can turn the lights on in your home from cities away using your phone. And I just want you to look at all of the ways in which we are focused on convenience, gang. We are pretty deeply committed to it. And what we're trying to put out there is, and what does that say about us? We think we have something very rich and powerful for you in this series. We're certainly not throwing eggs at people or trying to point fingers. We're just saying, look, there's this thing called the world that Scripture is pretty concerned about, God's pretty concerned about, that to align yourself with is to literally separate yourself from the kingdom of God. And Morgan, I think you're right. I think all of us have a divided allegiance. I think it's embarrassing how divided our allegiance is. And and therefore, without shame, without condemnation, let's unpack this thing. Let's let's dismantle this thing and, and get its tentacles out of our hearts and our lives so that we might be the friends of God and and be like those who who lived well in ages past, recognizing that the country of their own was coming. It's coming. Joy, pleasure, satisfaction, life is coming. But not to be the slaves of the present moment or, or literally trapped in the eternal present moment. So we hope this is helpful, gang. You've been listening to the Ransom Heart Podcast with Morgan Snyder, Alan Arnold, John Eldridge, and the first of a number of conversations that our team is going to have about the world. 